Good morning to all of you. And welcome. This is our uh, final session in this five-week series. And uh, a word of appreciation to all those who uh, make these events possible. Karen Snow and the Logan uh, for Life staff and other people who uh, contribute in so many different ways at a time like this. So I'm always grateful for the faithfulness that uh, you have provided again this time and the words of support that you provide to me. And uh, we are honored and humbled every time we receive an invitation to return to, uh, to Christ Church. We had many good years here, and we're grateful for the relationships that we established, and we're grateful for the ways that you express uh, your gratitude as well. We have quite a bit of material today, so forgive me if it feels a bit rushed, but our theme today is that grace is practical. We've talked about last week the fact that grace is costly, that it cost God his son to uh, make grace an event in our lives and that we can experience it. And today we talk about the practical side of grace. And I want to begin this morning by turning to Galatians chapter 2 at verse 11 and through verse 21. If you have a Bible, you might want to... uh, follow along with me. Galatians chapter 2 at verse 11. Let's hear God's word. When Peter came to Antioch, I, that is the Apostle Paul, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. Interesting, isn't it? Um, Sometimes we have the idea that uh, the Bible covers up things or the Bible isn't always honest about relationships. Well, here we have a situation where um, Peter and Paul uh, went at each other. When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. Before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law, because by observing the law, no one will be justified. 
if while we seek to be justified in Christ, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners, does that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, I prove that I am a law breaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Now I think you will agree with me that any time a group of people come together, whether that's in church or PTA, I don't think they call it PTA anymore, do they? They call it something else now. It's got a glorified term right now. Or any kind of study group or anything that happens in our communities, things that happen in our homes and our families. Anytime a group of people come together, one thing is almost certain, and that is that conflict and differences of opinion will be present. One of the signs which indicate a group is healthy, it seems to me, is that differences are honestly dealt with. Conflict has marked the life of the Christian church ever since its beginning. The Gospels, for example, record the story of the disciples who wanted positions in the kingdom. Two of the disciples came to Jesus and said, Lord, when you come to your kingdom, I want to be the vice president and I want to be the secretary of the treasury. Conflict, because we read that immediately the other disciples uh, were in conflict with their brothers. The book of Acts is an interesting book because in the first and opening chapters there, we have the coming of the Holy Spirit, what happens when the Spirit comes. There's a great story there about in the end of the second chapter how um, they, they, the, the, the new Christians came together. They listened to the disciples' uh, teaching they prayed together, they had fellowship together, they had communion together, they celebrated the Lord's Supper, um, and the church grew. And then, lo and behold, in about the fourth chapter, we have that very interesting story of Ananias and Sapphira, who lied through their teeth, and uh, they went dead. If you don't know the story, you ought to read it. Because uh, it's an indication, again, that conflict has always been present. And the story we read this morning from Galatians now is that Paul confronts Peter over the breakdown of their agreement. Their agreement was that Paul would minister to the Gentiles and Peter would primarily minister to the Jews. And Paul felt that when Peter was with the Jews, he behaved like them. But when he was with the Gentiles, he behaved like them. And so there was a problem here of hypocrisy. And Paul knew that it had to be dealt with. 
And uh, as he said in that opening verse, I confronted him to his face because I knew he was wrong. Now, I sometimes hear, I sometimes hear, have heard it. I've been in the ministry now 45 plus years or so. I sometimes hear that, oh, we don't have any problems in our church. And my guess is that they probably have more problems than they can imagine. Frequently, frequently in a local church, we find, sympt- <clears throat> we find symptoms of conflict which are not being dealt with. Symptoms of conflict which are not being dealt with. So, for example, people withdraw from the conflict. I don't want to fight, so they just pull back. They don't participate in the same way that they did. Or people start to say, um, well, I don't know. I don't like what's happening over there. I I guess I won't pay my pledge. Or I I won't give all my money, my tithe to the church. I'll give it to some other organizations. Or there's a drop in attendance. Or there's people who move their membership around from one church to another. Or the pastor goes job hunting. Or there's a decay or a lack of communication. And as a result, people feel like something's going on and they don't have all the information they need. Or there's mistrust. Almost every decision becomes a major issue. And people end up choosing sides. The question is... Why or when does conflict occur? It seems to me that conflict occurs generally when two ideas try to be supreme. When two ideas, one of them needing to be on top. And when there is space for only one. And because of this, the temptation is to move into a win-lose kind of posture. And whenever you get into a win-lose kind of posture, I don't care what relationship we're talking about, whether that's home and family, whether that's church, community, whatever it is, whenever you get into a win-lose posture, it perpetuates conflict. What happens today or this week or this month carries over into a new tomorrow or next week or next month or next year. The worst thing that can happen in a marriage, for example, is when one of the partners in the marriage says, well, you said last week. No, it should have been dealt with last week. Okay? So a good series of questions to ask whenever there is conflict is, first of all, is there a conflict within me? Perhaps I'm undecided. Excuse me. Or I have several interests which could be served by different kinds of decisions. But oftentimes we don't recognize that the conflict probably is within me, my thoughts, my feelings, my attitudes, my understandings. Secondly, is there a relational conflict? That is, is there something wrong with my relationship with another person? Usually this grows out of some unresolved history, something not resolved previously. And this kind of conflict tends to perpetuate itself. 
Then, of course, the third question would be when we ask, um, uh, what, what is the cause of the conflict? A third question would be, is there an issue conflict? A decision, a decision must be made, but we can't agree. And usually the solution lies in getting more facts or agreeing on a goal that we're trying to reach or an honest assessment of the meaning of what disagreement is all about. The question always must be in any situation like that, particularly among Christians, is what does all of this have to do with grace? And I want to suggest to you that grace then becomes very practical. Or the larger question maybe is, can grace really flow from conflict in a group situation or in a family situation or in any kind of situation where there are differences of opinion? I would suggest that there are five gifts of grace that can come into situations that I've just been describing. First of all, the first gift of grace that comes into conflict situations is what I would call energy. Working through a conflict can give us power to drive beyond apathy. Just think of what might have happened if Peter and Paul had not hashed out their difference. Just think of what would have happened in the early church if Peter and Paul had not come to some kind of an agreement as to the place of the, of the Jewish community, the place of Gentiles coming into the community, and their own role in ministering to these two very distinct groups of people. I would suggest to you that if they had not dealt with the issue, we would not know the church today as we know it. We would not have the church today because in some ways I would think, other than the grace of God, of course, I would think that these two groups would just dissolve. One group would follow Peter, one group would follow Paul, and after a while, when you ever, whenever you do that kind of uh, worship of leadership, things fall apart. So there's energy, energy that comes into a situation when, when uh, conflict is honestly dealt with. That's a gift of grace. A second gift of grace, it seems to me, in the whole area of conflict, is a focusing awareness. Conflict can help us become aware of our differences in values and approaches and feelings. Some people in a conflict situation ask for the first time, why do I feel this way? Why do I feel what I'm feeling? Or what are my priorities that are getting in the way of helping us move forward here a bit? Many times it begins to develop a sense of being in a group with a central loyalty. It's always been frustrating for me within the life of the church and with any kind of group of, of people that we sometimes lack our understanding of what is the central focus of what we are all about. 
And when we have a central focus, that's why I think more and more organizations, churches particularly, are talking about writing uh, statements of purpose today and putting it up on walls and putting it in places and public places. This is what we are about. Go to any hospital today and you will see a statement of their reason for being. And you say, well, why do they have to do that? Because oftentimes we get frustrated then if there is not a singleness of purpose about what an organization is all about. So there's the focusing awareness that takes place when we are willing to invest our energy in saying, what is this all about and what am I contributing to the demise or the hurt of this organization? I need to ask those two primary questions. Why do I feel this way and what are my priorities? The third gift of grace that comes into a conflict situation is the slowing of the process. It's good to take a look at ourselves, the words that we use, the actions that we take. We take into account the ideas of other persons. That is, we're willing to investigate uh, some of the things that are happening or why so-and-so maybe has expressed his or herself in a particular way. But a slowing of the process in such a way that at some point we understand that it's not just the other persons who are at fault, but I'm contributing to this situation as well. Sometimes the slowing of the process is merely um, stepping back a moment I oftentimes say to newly married couples, when you get into a situation where you are in conflict with each other, go to your respective corners in the ring, if you will. Take a time out. Say, I need 10 minutes here. Go to another room. Go to the bathroom. I don't care where you go, but get out of the situation and slow the process down just a bit. Sometimes it's just the very practical thing of being able to say, maybe I contributed something here that I was not aware of. When I was first in the ministry, maybe I told this story um, already. If I have, too bad you're going to hear it again. <laughs> but when I, when I was first in the ministry, my first church was in sort of a semi-rural area in, in uh, the Grand Rapids area. And um, the church had just uh, repainted the, the sanctuary. They were very pleased with the fact that they had done a nice job of redecorating the sanctuary. And um, I knew the decorator. I knew who had, had done it. I knew his style and so on. But um, this little church had exposed organ pipes. They were fake, but they had exposed organ pipes up in front. You remember that kind of little church, don't you? Of course. And so the decorator thought that what he would be a good thing would be to paint those organ pipes in various shades of blue. So the lighter blue and they got to the darker blue up toward the center, both sides here and then this side, this side. Well, I thought it looked ugly. So, you know, and... I usually I'm not too afraid to say what I think. So anyway, I was there just, mind you, only a matter of weeks. So we had one of our board meetings. And um, 
we got talking about the decorating. I guess we had to pay the final bill or something. I don't know what, the, what prompted the discussion. But anyway, I opened my big mouth and said I didn't really like those, the looks of those things. In fact, I thought the whole color scheme was a little bit drab. And um, there were other people who expressed various opinions. And after a while, I noticed that one of my elders was no longer in the room. <laughs> and um, so I said, um, anybody know where Neil went? Oh, he could have gone to use the bathroom. But several people said, well, we think that maybe he was hurt by what you said about the painting. So um, I stopped the meeting. This is the slowing of the process now. Okay. I stopped the meeting and I went to see if Neil was still in the building. And he was. He was upstairs in the sanctuary crying like a child. Tears. And um, I sat next to him and I apologized for what I said. And I said, I don't want this to come between the two of us. I'm new. I'm not going to say that I made a mistake because, you know, the seminary didn't tell me about situations like this. <laughs> I made a mistake, and I'm sorry. I want you to know that Neil became one of my biggest supporters in that church. He was wonderful. He was wonderful. And when I left ministry there, after four or five years, why, he was one of the persons who said, you ought not leave. Now, how did that happen? It happened because I was willing to stop long enough to say, something's wrong here. It also is important, when we do that kind of thing, to model behavior for other people. Slowing the process is one of the gifts of grace that can come into a conflict situation. And then, of course, the fourth uh, possibility of, of, or the fourth gift is clearing the air. I mean, immediately when I came back into the room with Neil, the whole tone of that meeting changed dramatically. There was a clearing of the air. And then what develops from all of those four gifts, I think, is the fifth gift of grace, and that is trust. Trust. Need to be able to trust other persons if you're going to be able to function together, live together, work together, and proceed to fulfill the purpose of an organization. And I think that's what happened here in the book of Galatians. Paul uh, deals with the issue then of the law of God and um, understands that we are justified by grace and by faith in Christ and 
as a result of that confrontation with Peter, uh, he and Peter were able to do the work that God had ordained for them to do. And I think we can even go so far as to say that you and I are believers in Christ today because Peter and Paul dealt with conflict early on in the life of the church. Now, we're going to turn to Dr. Smeeds a moment and look at our last outline. But before we do that, does anybody have a question about what I've just said having to do with conflict? And please don't tell me that you have never had any conflict at all in your life. <laughs> yes, Bob. The question is, did Neil ever get around to painting the organ pipes the way I wanted them? (laughs) No, the organ pipes stayed that way, and they're probably still that way. No, 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 that building burned down. Um, I didn't light the match, though, I want you to know. (laughs) Very good question. Thank you. No, because, you know, what's interesting about that is that I don't think that we didn't ever deal with that subject again um, because there were other people who didn't particularly like it either, but we respected Neil. He was the primary person who had worked with the decorator and all that kind of stuff. And they had a committee, of course. You have to have committees. And when you have committees to choose paint colors, you get five different colors, of course. But um, nonetheless, uh, it never reared its head again, I think primarily of that whole thing of trust that took place as a result. Yeah, so thank you. Don? Could you just review the five gifts again and list those? Yeah, sure, be happy to. Those five things I've mentioned are energy, focusing awareness, mostly awareness about my own self, Slowing the process, clearing the air, and trust. Something else? Right over here. Last year, Dan, in his sermon, talked about the difference between discussion, which ends up being a confrontation and arguments and whatever, and Dialogue, And I guess that's what we need to learn how to do is dialogue between each other, taking turns, telling each other mm-hmm. our opinion. And I think that slows the process too. Yeah, I, I do believe it, it, it does. And also, again, um, I have to be able to um, have the trust that the other people in the group then, while we're dialoguing, are maintaining confidences sometimes. That's crucial. And um, other, other things that, ha- that, that have to be present uh, in order for good dialogue uh, to take place, it seems to me. Um, yes, Larry? Just along that line, I was in a meeting a few years ago. Tony Campola was talking, and it, it seems obvious once he said it, but I never thought about it. He says, you cannot have true dialogue unless you're willing to entertain the idea that you could change your mind. Yeah, very good. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Something else? All right, then let's spend some time looking at Dr. Smeeds. And as I've said before, 
um, uh, some of the stuff that we have uh, that we talk about in terms of the grace and the biblical concept of grace uh, don't always uh, necessarily relate to what Dr. Smeads uh, uh, addresses. But I think today um, uh, there is some real practicality in what Dr. Smeads has to say, particularly in the chapter uh, entitled Coming to Terms with Our Shamers. And if you look at your outline a moment, please, it says to be healed of shame that we do not deserve, we must sooner or later come to terms with our feelings about the person or persons who shamed us. The remedy of forgiving, that, so, and so he suggests then uh, the remedy of forgiving. Forgiving is difficult. The first and often the only person to be healed by forgiveness is the person who does the forgiving. So let me read just a little bit here. Uh, first of all, about uh, forgiveness as a personal drama with five scenes. This, these are the five things that he mentions. And um, I want to read some sections here because... He, in some ways, is uh, reminding us again of how practical uh, grace really is. Forgiving is difficult. This is the first thing we need to know. The second is that the first and often the only person to be healed by forgiveness is the person who does the forgiving. And the third thing we need to understand is what we actually do when we forgive someone. So consider forgiveness as a personal drama with five scenes. Scene one, we blame the shamer. We hold him or her accountable. If we do not hold people accountable for what they did to us, we will not forgive them. I think that is a profound statement. If we do not hold people accountable for what they did to us, we will not forgive them. We may indulge them, perhaps, as if it did not matter, mu or, uh, matter much, or we may excuse them as if they could not help doing what they did, but we will forgive them only if we hold them responsible for what they did to us. It has been my experience over the years that when people have been very hurt by another individual that at some point that person needs to be confronted. And what we know from a psychological standpoint is that for people who have experienced um, severe trauma, uh, some of the sexual abuse that is going on today and in other, other areas of our life, that at some point the abuser and the abused, there has to be some, some, some contact, some relationship in order to, for that person who is the abused one to blame that person for his or her abuse. So we blame the shamer. Secondly, scene two, we surrender our right to get even. We take our natural right to a balanced account, a right to fairness, mind you. That is all, only what we deserve. We take it in our hands, look it over, consider its possibilities, and then surrender it. 
We agree to live with the score untied. We surrender our right to get even. Scene three. We revise our caricature of the person who shamed us. When we taste our resentment, we roll it around our minds the way we roll a sour lozenge around our tongues. And as we taste it, our minds draw a caricature of our shamer. We turn him into a monster who is what he did to us. We see him. We feel him. We define his whole person in terms of how he shamed us. However, as we move with the forgiving flow, we gradually change our monster back into the weak and faulty human being he is or was not all that different from ourselves. Scene four. We revise our feelings. As the frozen tundra of resentment melts, a bit of compassion breaks through the crust. Sorrow blends with anger. Sympathy softens resentment. We feel emerging in our consciousness a hesitant desire for the other person's welfare. Scene 5. We accept the person who made us feel unacceptable. In the last scene in the drama, we offer our shamer the grace that God has offered us. We not only pardon him, we also accept him. We take him back into our lives as a fellow member of the human family. Remember, does not mean that you take him back into your life but take him back as a member of the human family. Chances are that we are not able to restore the special relationship we had before. But if we cannot be reconciled, it will not be our resentment that prevents it. Then he goes on to give some advice to those who want to forgive their shamers. And I think this is really important material because... We have gotten confused, I think, about forgiveness and what that entails. And particularly, we have forgotten about how God's forgiveness is perhaps incomprehensible and something that we cannot easily attain for ourselves. But there are ways in which you and I can practice forgiveness that is practical, it seems to me, and helpful psychologically and soul uh, and spiritually. He says this, forgiving is delicate soul surgery. Forgiving is delicate soul surgery. Botched surgery can be worse than no surgery. And botched forgiveness can be worse than no forgiveness. There are some common mistakes that well-meaning forgivers easily make. And if we can avoid them, we, can, we may spare ourselves some needless frustration. Let me offer some advice. First, try understanding first. Before we rush to forgiveness, we should explore understanding. 
if we understand that our parents simply could not help themselves, that they were powerless against their own shame, we do not blame them and we do not forgive them. Our bitterness will wash out of our mind in the waters of compassion. We can understand some things, of course. We can make some allowances for our shamer's weaknesses and still believe that he did not have to do them and not understand why he did. In that case, our only recourse is to blame and forgive. Try understanding first. Second, separate what you can put up with from what you need to forgive. Most of the pain we suffer from our parents is not the sort that needs to be forgiven. Parenting rambunctious children is a tough job for imperfect people. Good parents make bad mistakes. Oh yes, they do lots of things wrong. But raising us was a job nobody could do exactly right. We were often a pain in their neck. We taxed their patience beyond any human being's breaking point. If our parents bungled their parenting now and then, they were doing what all imperfect people tend to do. There is an underrated human quality called magnanimity, which literally means being a large soul large enough to put up with imperfect people, and we should try it before we hurry to forgive. And that brings him to the next point, which I think is one of the best points about forgiveness. Don't be hasty. It has taken us a while to nourish a childhood misery into a life of adult shame. It may take a while to forgive the person who infected us. We should not expect to heal our shame with one flash of forgiveness. Forgiving works incrementally, like compound interest, and it's a long-term investment. Quick-draw forgivers rush into forgiving before they know the lay of the land. They load forgiveness on people who do not need to be forgiven or they forgive people too easily without holding them to account. Worst of all, hasty forgivers often use forgiveness to get other people under their thumb. Hendrik Ibsen saw it clearly in his play, A Doll's House. A banker by the name of Torvald forgave his wife, Nora. For what? What did she do? What Nora did was this. She had foolishly run up some debts and gotten herself into a kind of financial jam that an enemy could use to make a whole lot of trouble for her husband. Nora had not told Torvald, but he found out. Seeing the mess he might be in, he went into a fierce rage. He confronted her. He would not divorce her, he said. He would keep her around where he could remind her every day that he hated her. He would keep her in the house, but he would not allow her to be a mother to their children. Almost as soon as he had condemned Nora to the status of a possession, 
Torval learned that the secret, the terrible secret would be kept and his career was saved. He forgave her instantly. It is true, Nora, I swear it, I have forgiven you everything. There is, so, there is something so indescribably sweet and satisfying to a man in the knowledge that he has forgiven his wife. End of quote. What made forgiving so sweet to him? It was sweet to him because it gave him total control over her. She owed him everything. Ibsen explains it this way. It made her, as it were, doubly his possession. She has, in a way, become both a wife and a child to him. Make no mistake, hasty forgiving can be the meanest trick of all. You have to think that one through a little bit. But then the other side of that, his other point is, don't wait too long. If we wait too long, our resentment seeps into the pores of our personality. It assumes our identity. Our resentment becomes less what we feel than what we are. It possesses so much of us that surrendering it means tearing away a segment of our own self. I once persuaded a church to admit its fault for unfairly firing and in the process shaming its minister. With a rare grace, this congregation confessed the wrong it did to him and pleaded with him to forgive them. Well and good, but the congregation had waited 30 years. <laughs> during, the <laughs> during those three decades, the minister's rage had become a part of who he was. I have had my anger for so long, I won't know myself without it. But he began to forgive and began to rediscover his true self again. I will never forget an experience that I had some time ago when I attended a seminar at a, a psychiatric hospital. It was for pastors who had served their churches for a period of time, had been pastors for a period of time. Most of us 20-some years. And uh, there was one man who was there who was a real pain in the neck. He interrupted almost every conversation. He was always talking about himself. He was selfish. He didn't seem to ever be part of the group. And when we met both as small groups and the larger group, it always seemed that we had to focus on him. It was a Friday noontime, and our afternoon session was going to be the final session that we were going to be together. We were again in a large group. And again, he was conducting himself in the same way. I finally was angry enough to say, I don't like you. What you have done all this week seems to be da-da-da-da-da-da. I want you to know that he was sitting in a chair like this, an armchair, 
he turned sideways, curled up in a fetal position, and began to weep. Not just one minute, but five, ten minutes. He wept. Tears. Finally, the leader of the group asked him what was going on. He said, my father was part of the secret service in the Netherlands during the Second World War. He came, to, he, met, he, he came home one night and said to his family that he probably would not return home. What he was, had to do that evening was probably at the risk of his own life, and he probably would be dead. And then he looked at this boy, the man who was weeping. He looked at this boy who was in his 10, 11, 12 years old and said, and you have to take care of your family. Then he said, I have had to take care of everybody my whole life. And now I'm in a church where they expect me to take care of them to the degree that I can't. And I hate them, and I hate my father, and I hate everything about what I'm called to be and to do. We spent another three hours dealing with his anger, with his hurt, with his frustration. And by the time we were finished, I believe that man took a new step I know he did, took a new step to new health, new healing, new understanding. And I think he became aware of the fact that you ought not wait <laughs> too long. Waited altogether too long to forgive or to understand his father. Larry? Uh, the abuse you have to you have to be able to confront your abuser to really get help. Uh -huh. What if that, your abuser is is gone, is dead? Mm -hmm. So you can't do it when, when what you should have done. Well, he will. He'll say something about that a bit when um, when we recognize that we ought not wait for our shamer to repent. Okay, there are times when. Uh, it can't happen. And then you and I still have to work our own stuff. Yeah. Someone else? Yes, Betty Jo. Wait, wait for the microphone, please. What happened to that man happened to me when I was 13 years old hmm. and just graduated grade school. 
my dad was really sick, and they called him into the hospital. Mm -hmm. And he was self-employed. We lived in the country. And he called me aside. My brother was 10, and my mother was in her middle 40s and starting through the change of life where you get anxiety attacks and things. Mm -hmm. So he took me by the hand, talked to me, put his hand on my shoulder and said, take care of the family. Mm. Well, he made it out of the hospital, but the same day he made it out of the hospital, he died at home. And ever since then, I kept thinking, take care of your little brother, take care of your mother. I wouldn't cry or show my feelings. They would cry and say, why did this happen? And Mm-hmm. You know, I miss my father and that. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't cry because he says, you be the strong one. Yep. And it went around with me for years till I got counseling at the church here. Mm-hmm. And they said, well, your father was wrong in saying, always take care of them. Oh. There's a point where they grow up, too, and they should take care of themselves. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you. Someone else? We have to move on quickly here. My sister is 78, 10 years older than I am. I spoke to her some time ago recently. She holds a grudge against my father that's been dead for many, many years. Never resolved that. And uh, she uh, is hesitant to articulate that, but uh, you can tell that uh, the nature of the Resentment goes deep. She was put in charge of the family mm-hmm. uh, at 10. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah, I think all of us have uh, some, some story that we can share at that point. And again, I think it's really, um, really crucial, and I need to say this pastorally, that if indeed you, uh, you, you see evidences in your life of anger or uncertainty or frustration with feelings that you have never really dealt with. You owe it to yourself uh, and you owe it to others to, to receive some kind of help at that point. And, um, and, and uh, I, I think if you don't do that, then you're not only suffering spiritually and emotionally and physically and all the other ways that we suffer, but other people around you can be suffering as well. Let me go on to say, he says, be concrete. We should forgive in verbs, not in nouns. Forgive people for what they do, not for what they are. Next point, do not wait for your shamer to repent. Our shamer would make it much easier to forgive him if he would crawl to us in sackcloth and ashes. But if we wait for him to grovel at our feet, we may wait forever. If we keep waiting for him to tell us he's sorry... We put our own healing in the hands of someone who may never get around to saying it. So in the worst of ironies, we give the person who shamed us the power to prevent us from the healing, the very, uh, healing the very shame he caused. That, I think, is important, Larry. It goes to your point that there are times when we cannot find that person, don't see that person, can't be with that person, and as long as we keep holding that stuff into ourselves, we don't forgive ourselves, and we don't forgive that person. 
And then do not forgive out of a sense of duty. Begin by pretending if you need to. Sometimes we have to pretend that we've forgiven that person. Prime the pump by acting as if you're forgiving, he says. And settle for silent forgiving if you must. The ideal script calls for the forgiver to go to the shamer and say, I forgive you, but it is not always a good idea to do that. Not everyone has the knack of saying good things well. If we do not say it in the right way or at the right time or for the right reason, we, do, we may do more harm than, in, than if we did not say it at all. When we genuinely forgive, this is his final point, when we genuinely forgive, we set a prisoner free and then discover that the prisoner we set free was us. We walk in grace and gradually learn to dance. And then finally on your sheet, please, if you look under accepting ourselves, accepting ourselves is not the same as forgiving ourselves. Therefore, we need to take ownership of myself or ourselves. That is, we need to own our raw material. That is, we take responsibility for building a life out of whatever raw materials we have been given. Secondly, we own the shadowy self beneath the surface of the self that's open to the public. And all of us do. We have that shadow side of us. And we take pride in the self we own. Look at yourself today. Go home and go look in a mirror and say, I am important. I am someone. I'm created in the image of God. God knows me. God loves me. And his grace is evident in my life. Do that. You'll feel a whole lot better. And we need and we feel some joy in the self we own. Now. Turn it over a moment, please, because Dr. Smeeds does a great thing at the very end, at the very end of his book, he gives what he calls sort of a creed, a statement of his own faith. Smeeds closes with his commitment to faith, a faith for shame-free life, grace-based life, lighter life. I do not claim to live up to my faith, not yet, not consistently. I'm still learning to live with grace instead of with shame. But it is the faith I want to live by, the faith I intend to live by. Here is Smeed's statement of faith. I believe that the only self I need to measure up to is the self my maker meant me to be. I believe that I am accepted by the grace of God without regard to my deserving. I believe that I am accepted along with my shadows and the mix of good and bad I breed in them. I believe that I am worthy to be accepted. I believe that grace has set me free to accept myself totally and without conditions, though I do not approve of everything I accept. I believe that nothing I deserve is to be ashamed of will ever make me unacceptable to God. I believe that nothing I deserve to be ashamed of will ever make me unacceptable to God. I believe that I can forgive anyone who has ever infected me with shame I do not deserve. I believe that I may forgive myself for anything that I've ever done to shame myself or another person. I am gratefully proud of being who I am and what I shall be. 
I believe that the grace of God heals the shame I do not deserve and heals the shame I do. I believe that grace is the best thing in the world. I would suggest to you, you put it on your mirror where you get ready in the morning and read it over and over and over again because they're positive, enriching, encouraging statements about how to deal with shame and how to experience the grace of God. Let's pray together, please. And now, dear God, we ask that you will receive our gratitude for all of the things that we have learned over this period of time, what we've shared together, and as we have sought to identify our stories with your story, dear God. Your story is about grace, grace that is greater than our sin, grace that is greater than our shame, grace that is greater that allows us to to dance in life and experience full joy. And God, we pray that as we leave this place today, uh, having learned what we have learned and having celebrated what we celebrate and, uh, and live in a way that is pleasing to you, that somehow the grace of Christ may be manifest in our lives and that others will want to have what we have through Christ our Lord. We offer ourselves to you humbly, sincerely, believing that your grace is more than adequate to meet our every need. Through Jesus Christ our Lord we pray, amen.